Hello, and welcome to this week's sermon podcast from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Kenwood. Here we preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Whether you find the message to be uplifting or challenging, comforting or even unsettling, we hope it'll help you grow in faith and your relationship with God. Thank you for listening. To God be the glory. The first reading is from Job. Oh, that my words could be recorded. Oh, that they could be inscribed on a monument, carved with an iron chisel and filled with lead, engraved forever in the rock. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I am overwhelmed at that thought. Here ends the first reading. The second reading is from Philosians. Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered to meet him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already become begun. Don't believe them, even if they claim to have a spiritual vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us. Don't be fooled by what they say, for that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that I told you all about this when I was with you? As for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. We are always thankful that God chose you to be among the first to experience salvation, a salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you holy and through your belief in the truth. He called you to salvation when we told you the good news. Now you can share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. With all of these things in mind, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm and keep a strong grip on the teaching we passed on to you, both in person and by letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal comfort and a wonderful hope comfort you and strengthen you in every good thing you do and say. Here ends the reading. Please stand for the gospel. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. They posed this question, Teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies, leaving a wife but no children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children, so the second brother married the widow, but he also died. Then the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them who died without children. Finally, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Jesus replied, Marriage is for people here on earth. But in the age to come, those worthy of being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. 
They will never die again. In this respect, they will be like angels. They are children of God and children of the resurrection. But now, as to whether the dead will be raised, even Moses proved this when he wrote about the burning bush. Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, he referred to the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead, for they are all alive to him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. So, listen, y'all know I love musicals, right? We've talked about this before. They sing to my soul, and this Job reading is calling up all kinds of songs for me. And I'm not going to preach about the other lessons. I'm going to talk about Job. In Wicked, Elphaba sings, No good deed goes unpunished. No act of charity goes unresented. That feels like Job to me in a nutshell. Elphaba has been trying to do good to help people, and everyone around her only sees the color of her skin. She's green. And you know already that I can't stop singing Hades Town. It's my fabulous, famous, favorite new musical. It's an old song, it's a love song, it's a sad song, and we're going to sing it again. And then from Hamilton, when the colonists have defeated England at the Battle of Yorktown, the chorus sings, The world turned upside down. This is what's going on in the book of Job. The world turned upside down. Job is this fascinating, beautiful, messy, heartbreaking book in the middle of our Bibles. And while it's not the single turning point, it's part of this massive and difficult shift in thinking. So before Job, and and I'm aware that this is a little bit oversimplified, but before Job, there was this sense of good people receiving blessings and bad people being cursed, a clear binary. If you want blessings, you do what the law says is good, and if you're experiencing misfortune, you must have deserved it. So, just do good. End of story. You see it all the time in the Psalms, in the ancient stories, the matriarchs and the patriarchs, and it's certainly the root of the modern theology of glory that right now you can receive monetary blessing if only you are righteous enough. And people begging on the street or suffering from addiction have brought it on themselves. It's a simplistic way of looking at the world, and it precludes the need for compassion. Because we all know, if we allow ourselves to think about it at all, that people who are suffering mostly don't deserve it. And people who seem perfectly happy and comfortable are not as pure as the driven snow. The world just isn't like that. But it's easier to think that it is, isn't it? Because people are complex. God's creation is not easy to get a handle on. And we long for a simple moral or a clear directive. Job marks the shift in our scriptures away from this simple binary to a more complex wrestling. It's more about metaphor and questions than anything else. So Job begins with a folk tale. It's not a historical narrative, but sort of a a once upon a time kind of story. One of the translators, I love this, one of the translators uh, writes it this way. A man there was in the land of Uz. <laughs> so great. That rhyme, that playfulness, that's, that's in Hebrew. It's a frame around, it's a pretext for the wrestling with evil that is the bulk of this book. Job was a good man, the best. And because he was so, so good with a capital G, he had ten children, 
and he had a beautiful wife. He had a big house and flocks and flocks of sheep and goats and camels and cattle and slaves. He had, as Pastor Alex always says, fat stacks of cash. All because he was so righteous in the sight of God. And then God starts chatting with the adversary in Hebrew, Hasatan. Not Satan, the red dude with the pitchfork. No, the adversary. Really an obstacle, the one who frustrates. Again, it's a folktale. Hasatan takes away everything that Job has. His sheep and goats and camels and cattle and slaves, his beautiful mansion, his fat stacks of cash, his ten beautiful children die in a horrible accident. His health, Job is reduced to living on the street, his wife estranged, his entire body covered by a mysterious and ugly disease. For some reason, he's scraping at his skin with a piece of broken pottery. It's gross. And to top it all off, his three friends who sit with him consider what it was that Job could have done to deserve all this. Friends. Because obviously the sudden turning of Job's life upside down could only be his fault and his alone. For chapters and chapters they harangue him. And I suppose this is where we get the idea that Job is patient. He isn't in the end, but we'll get to that. So suddenly we switch from this violent but charming folktale to an extensive treatise on the nature of evil in the form of epic poetry. We don't have time this morning to really get into the masterfulness of it, the wordplay, the complexity, but consider this one line that Job says about how God formed him in the womb before he was born. He says, you poured me out like milk, like cheese, you curdled me. Isn't that great? I love it. The majority of the book of Job, this long epic poem, is asking the question, why God lets bad things happen to good people. In all of our hearts, this is the question, right? No matter who you believe the good people are or what you believe those bad things to be, why? Why does God allow for this? What are we supposed to do with a world that is upside down, where justice doesn't prevail, where cruel people succeed, and people who are working so hard or who have made mistakes pay for them for the rest of their lives. I did think at this point that we might do like an audience participation kind of thing where I was going to teach you some inverted yoga poses. Um, Let's just pretend we did that and move on. Now the point is that the book of Job is messy because the lives we live are messy. There may be some people in the world who are good or bad to the extreme, but for the most part, we are what Martin Luther said, saints and sinners simultaneously. And we are all tempted or hurt or filled with doubt by Hasatan, the adversary, the one who frustrates. For me, Hasatan is the voice that says, who do you think you are? It's the voice that tells me that everything I have done is a failure. It is the voice of shame. Perhaps it's the same for you, or perhaps it's the voice of fear. 
or the voice of abandonment, or even the voice of complete and utter confidence, because hasatan is what tries to keep us from God. And apparently Job doesn't hear that voice. He's a broken man, abjectly alone, worse even than alone with those three friends who blame him oh so kindly for his misery. And he doesn't break until he does. Because the phrase, the patience of Job, is wrong. Job does break. He screams his pain and anger at God, crying, Who do you think you are? Why? Why did you do this to me? In the bit just before what we heard this morning, Job laments with increasing sadness all the relationships he's now lost. His household servants, his brothers, his children, his wife. Intimacy is turned to revulsion. Even the words the writer uses step up in intensity. It's distance, then refusal, repulsion, rejection. And on top of it all, in the framing sequence and in Job's own words, it is God who rejects. It is God who brings this pain down on him. This perspective flips the conventional understanding that it's God who brings blessing, and it's the wicked who destroy. The world turned upside down. This world was created by God and sustained by God and redeemed by God, but even so, as one of the commentaries I read this week said, justice does not always prevail, even in societies in which justice is a basic value. Job believes he will die from this suffering, this over-the-top suffering, and not in the sort of goofy and cartoony and very over-the-top way that Jonah thinks he's going to die in his book. Jonah thinks he's going to die because his enemies repent and the bush that has been shading him from the sun disappears and he's a little hot. No, Job's ridiculously over-the-top suffering is our suffering. We know what it's like to grieve. We know what it's like to lose property and love and respect and health. We know what it feels like even for a moment to feel hopeless and helpless. The point of scripture, or one of them anyway, is to turn things upside down. It's the younger brother always, not the older who inherits. It's the poor and orphaned and oppressed who are blessed. Jesus comes not to be a military leader or a divine vending machine for all of our wants, but to offer freedom in the form of powerlessness. What we expect, what we think we know for certain gets turned on its head. And this is good news, because it means that those who have nothing will inherit everything. It means that the parts of us that are hurting will receive peace. The the cruelty that we inflict and that is inflicted on us will stop. It means we don't have to be certain or in control. Thank God. Upside down means that there's hope for the world's suffering and for your personal suffering. It's going to end. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, says Revelation. But the process 
of turning upside down. That's threatening. Jesus telling us that the rich will have a hard time getting into the kingdom when we are the rich is scary. Scripture telling us over and over to welcome the stranger with open arms no matter who they are or where they're from or what else is happening sounds scary. So we logic ourselves out of it. This is the process of the world shifting and we get to be a part of it. We are invited by virtue of having the breath of God in our lungs to participate in turning the world upside down, in co-creating something new, something kinder, something more beautiful. Eventually, at the tail end of this book, we get the end of the folktale, the framing story. Because, because of Job's ongoing faith and despite his frustration with God, or maybe, maybe because he's willing to yell at God, he gets all his property back, twice over even. He gets 10 more kids, which is supposed to be reassuring, (laughs) and more wealth than he knows what to do with. Only it's not that neat. Today's text is right in the middle of the book of Job, and though it sounds really positive, it ends without resolution, with Job still feeling upside down, with his longing for redemption and clarity. In my flesh I desire to see God, he says. Not sometime after my inevitable death, but here and now, with my own eyeballs, I want to see God, who is my friend and not a stranger. The reading ends with Job's desire, but without God's action. It leaves us hanging. This story does not give us directions. It does not give us a simple moral. It asks us a question. Where is God? Where is God already in your life? Where is God already working, walking next to you, holding your hand, maybe a few steps down the path, beckoning with a delighted smile? Come on! Or maybe, to put it another way, what feels upside down to you? Or even, how much of your suffering is exaggerated? How much of your suffering hasn't been taken seriously? How much of other people's suffering have we not taken seriously? What, friends, what do you hope for? The world is upside down. And we need it to be turned upside down again and again and again so that in our disorientation, we can hold on to God who is reaching out for us. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's message from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Kenwood. Please browse our website for other opportunities to grow in faith or serve the Lord. If you are able to worship with us at any time, we would be most honored by your presence.